I wish you knew how much I love you. I don't feel any love from you whatsoever. Well, I don't even think you know what love is. I don't have to say it. You just need to know it. Fanabanta said, love is not blind. Love sees what is most true. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. Happy Valentine's Day, my friends. This podcast is released every Monday. So regardless of when you listen to it, it's coming out on Monday, February 14th, which is Valentine's Day. Some of us have a love-hate relationship with this holiday. So I'm not making any statements about Valentine's Day. I'm just acknowledging that it is Valentine's Day. And some of you love it. You love this day. There are little cardboard hearts all over your house. You got out your Valentine's Day mug. You've already made the dinner reservations. You've ordered the roses. You whipped out your heart boxers. You've got your heart earrings on. I know you do. Come clean. You love Cupid. (laughs) Some of you hate it. I know you're out there. It's an annoying day when everyone decks out in shades of red and pink and spends too much money on dinner and chocolate, right? So I'm not going to say a lot about it, but I am going to speak about relationships and love from the standpoint of connection. Why? Well, because those of you who listen to this podcast and those of you who are new around here, welcome, welcome, welcome. We love to have you in this community. But you know that one of the primary focal points of this podcast, and not just this podcast, but my work as a mental health professional in my therapy practice, it's the focus of my new book coming out, The Toolbox. It's the focus of my couple's work, the focus of family therapy work, and the focus of my individual work with clients, with myself. It's all about connection. I believe that the root cause of human suffering is disconnection. Now, obviously from an emotional standpoint, not physical, I'm not a medical doctor, But from an emotional, mental, relational standpoint, the cause of human suffering is disconnection from the self, from others, from the larger story, the universe, God, okay? That is what I believe is at the root of suffering. So when people asked me in the past what I specialize in, I used to list the mental and emotional diagnoses I treat. And that's because that's how I was trained. That's what you learn in graduate school. You learn diagnoses. They give you the DSM and you have to become an expert on the illness, the diagnosis, the diagnostic criteria, meaning all of the behaviors that give someone that diagnosis and the treatment protocol. Okay, so that's how therapy is taught. And so I used to list, well, I treat depression, I treat anxiety. And honestly, everybody does. If you have a degree in this field, you have to know what to do with depression and anxiety. But I've come to believe that diagnoses are garbage. I'm sorry. I just believe they are. And I'm not alone. There are many mental health professionals from therapists to social workers to psychiatrists who just don't diagnose anymore. I don't believe a diagnosis defines you or even describes you. I don't believe it's an identity. I just don't believe it. This is not what I've observed in myself. This is not what I've observed in my work as a clinician. How we develop into the adults we are, how we habituate our behaviors is so much more complex than a one to two to three word diagnosis. My friends, there are so many factors involved in a human life and how that life develops. A diagnosis for me is a gross oversimplification of what is a very complex, rich human life. So I don't diagnose my clients. And I think that's cost me clients. 
And I, and I don't care. Go find someone else. There are plenty of therapists out there. And I also think that it's drawn and attracted clients to me who really want to get to the deeper issues, who don't care about the label. They want to figure out what the heck is going on inside me. Why am I like this? Don't tell me what I am. Let's figure out why. That is the path for me of healing. So I don't diagnose my clients. I look at their story, their history, what beliefs were implanted early about them, their own core beliefs about themselves. What spoken and unspoken rules did their family of origin follow? How did this develop their sense of self? You think that's connected to depression and anxiety? I think so. And I could go into other diagnoses and what we would call the relational etymology, which is how this thing develops from a relational standpoint. Sure. I could talk about a lot of different diagnoses. I remember studying in graduate school twin studies on people who developed schizophrenia. And they would separate twins at birth. This is highly unethical and no one does it anymore. But they would separate twins at birth and one twin would get adopted into one family. One twin was adopted into another. And what they observed, this is fascinating, because schizophrenia is largely thought to have a genetic component. It is understood, at least the last time I looked at this literature, that it's inheritable with a 50% chance. In other words, if somebody has schizophrenia, there's a 50% chance their child will have it. Okay. So in this way, you would assume it's genetic right? If there's a 50% chance of inheriting it, it could be genetic. However, what they discovered using twin studies is that the children that were raised in emotionally validating environments, meaning they were heard, they were respected, they were loved, they're twins. They have identical DNA. They were identical twins, not fraternal. Okay. Those twins never developed it. They might have developed eccentricities. They were creative. They were artistic, whatever it is that they were. They did not develop schizophrenia. And the twins that were in emotionally unstable, abusive, harmful, invalidating environments actually did. And it was a huge moment in the field because what we realized was that nurture was as equal or even maybe more important than nature. So that's the whole nature-nurture argument. Okay, but those twin studies, I remember learning about that and thinking that's how important the environment is, that even if you have the potential for what we would call, quote unquote, a mental illness, that potential may not be realized in an emotionally healthy environment. So I don't diagnose clients. I want to know what happened. What was your family like? Was there trauma? What was the effect of the trauma on your belief about yourself, who you are in the world? What was your belief after that trauma about how the way the world operates? How do you see yourself in the world? What's your purpose? What's the meaning of your life? These bigger questions are far more relevant than a one to two to three word diagnosis about what's wrong with you. You've heard me repeat this quote before. When you plant lettuce, if the lettuce doesn't grow, you don't blame the lettuce. You look at the reasons why the lettuce isn't growing. And diagnoses, to me, far too often are labels that do nothing more than blame the lettuce. Well, you have this disease. You have this mental disorder. This is what's wrong with you. My friends, you've heard me say this before in other podcasts, but I'm here to tell you there's likely not a damn thing wrong with you. Yeah, maybe you have brain chemistry or genetic wiring that predisposes you towards certain mood states. Okay. Even though the evidence on that is, mm, it's unconvincing at best. There are arguments in both directions. But we have genetic predispositions toward personality, so why wouldn't we have genetic predispositions toward mood? Okay. However, 
I don't think there's anything wrong with that distinction in diversity in human beings. And I don't believe that it's a cause or an inevitable path toward mental illness. So often, you responded the only way you could to what was probably an emotionally insufficient or even a harmful environment. I could talk about this forever, but the rate of mental diagnosis that is happening right now and the levels of indiscriminate medicating, and I'm not talking to or about people who carefully, consciously choose psychotropic medications based on their symptoms and it helps them get through the day. I think that is a good use of medication. That's my opinion. If it helps you get through the day, if your day is impaired without that medication, yes, Take a drug to support you and, not in place of, and do the healing work. Get at the root causes. We have so many trauma interventions that are available to us right now. Things like brain spotting, EMDR, biofeedback, even simple mindfulness training that gives us so much more access to the places in the mind that were wounded and broken. So that's why I say I don't think there's anything wrong with your brain. Your brain adapted. And again, that mental diagnosis is a label. It's nothing more than that. It's not who you are, yourself, your heart, your dreams, your hopes, your person. Like it, That's not who you are. It's just a label that a group of doctors came up with to describe a certain set of behaviors that you employed to survive. So then therapy is the work of reestablishing the true self outside of beyond the harm or the negligence you may have suffered. Therapy is about identifying maladaptive behaviors and replacing them with behaviors that help you connect and stay connected to yourself, to other people in a healthy way. Sometimes we are bonded to people in unhealthy ways. Good therapy helps you connect to people in a healthy way and disconnect from people with whom you cannot do that. That's the other side of therapy is therapy is going to give you the strength slowly over time to disconnect from people who are toxic for you. So now let's switch to love. Little side note there on diagnoses, but let's talk about love, okay? Because there's many definitions of love, and I don't want to be overly romantic about it today. That's not what this podcast is about today. Today, we're going to use love as a word to encompass the behaviors that serve to connect us to ourselves and each other in a healthy way. Okay, go with me here. Love is just a short little word that encompasses the set of behaviors that facilitate the connection of one person to themselves and or to others in a healthy, edifying way. Okay, that's the definition we're working with today. So we're going to get an interesting new take on what it means to love someone. All right, let's dive in. Today, we're going to answer five questions. How was I shown love as a child? How do I show love now? Does the person that I'm loving, meaning showing these traits and these actions of love, does the person like this, need this, or want this? What does love mean to the person I'm claiming I love? And what do they need? Not what do I give? What do I want to give? What do they need? Okay? So real quick, how was I shown love? How do I show love? Does the other person like this, need this, or want this? 
What does it mean to love the person I think I love? And what do they need? Not what do I want to give? What do they need? Okay, so number one, how was I shown love as a child? Now, I've been told and I receive this feedback a lot that people take notes on these podcasts. I think that's a great idea. Whenever you're presented with any information, this podcast or anything else, pour yourself a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, sit down with your journal and jot down the notes that are meaningful to you. This is how we grow. You can also listen to this on the fly and just trust that whatever lands with you, whatever you pick up, whatever you wind up talking to a friend about, well, that's the part you need and that's the part that's stuck. But we're going to go through a lot of questions today that are very, very good therapeutic questions to get you in touch with a deeper layer of yourself. Okay, so who modeled love for you as a child? How did your mother show you love? If you grew up in a household where you had two parents, one parent, whoever your parents were, maybe it was your grandparents who raised you, who were your caregivers, okay? How did they show love? So as I was jotting down notes for the podcast, I started to ask myself, well, and I'm going to share some funny insights about this. How did my mother show love? Because I know it intuitively, and I tell stories about her a lot. She was such a big figure in my life. But then I thought, well, how did she show love, though? My mother showed love through care, She was a very pampering person. So she took the time to make really delicious meals, but she presented them to our family in a really beautiful way. Like my mother, we never served from the stove. My mother always used serving dishes, serving spoons, serving forks. Like she set the table. I'll give you an example. I was the youngest of four girls and I was just used to being around a lot of girls all the time. So I always had my little posse of friends and they would come over and we'd have these big sleepovers. And I was just like, my house was known for this. I loved having sleepovers at my house. And part of the reason I loved it was my mom, because we would wake up on Sunday morning, we had a Saturday night sleepover, and my mom would have the dining room table decked out with china and crystal, and she would serve us all pancakes and eggs and fruit, and she would pour orange juice into crystal glasses. Like my mother was giving us our fantasy of like a princess breakfast, and we loved it. And I don't even remember doing the dishes. We didn't. I think my friends and I were done, and then we scampered off to whatever we were doing, And my mom just, she was so sweet. Isn't that such a gift? She would give us these little princess breakfasts. But she did this all the time. My mother made me fresh juice many, many mornings of my life. My mom showed love with words. She was very expressive. She wrote cards, letters. I still have a lot of her cards and letters. She gave me books with little notes written throughout them. This is you, sweetheart. I love you so much, baby. She was very expressive with words. And she was affectionate. My mom kissed me, held me, snuggled me, cuddled me. She would lie down beside me when I slept. So I looked back and I thought, okay, well, Jeevanus, you show, and I'm going to get into this more in a minute when we talk about how we show love, but I looked at my adult life and I was like, well, hot diggity dog, I show love in a lot of the same ways. I'm not going to judge that as a good or a bad thing, but what do you know? So this is, this is the work. Okay, so ask yourself how your primary caregivers show love. My dad showed love differently. He showed love by really showing up. He was at every play, every recital. Um, he was always there. He was always very expressive of how proud he was. So ask yourself, okay, how did my caregivers show love? Who else showed you love in your childhood and it really felt like love to you? grandparents, teachers, coaches, your friends' parents. And sidebar, am I? is it just me or were your friends' parents hugely important to you? I don't feel like we talk about this enough. It's like we always talk about our own parents, but like sometimes our friends' parents were the best parents we had. Anyway, I know that was true for me. I had some friends and their parents were the people I talked to. They were the people I wanted to model my life after and that meant a lot to me. Okay, so ask yourself, when did you feel loved? 
what actions were communicated to you as a kid from anyone that made you feel loved. Remember that love feels like something. It feels warm, safe, open. It feels expansive and close at the same time. Now, when did it not feel like love? Who tried to love you, but it didn't feel like love? You know, when your aunt forces you to hug them or someone really wants you to open up and talk. They're trying to force a conversation out of you. Some people forced ideas down our throats that they thought were good for us, or they forced activities and interests that were neither activated in you or you were interested in. Do you hear the word that keeps coming up there? Forced. And I want you to pay attention to that word as we talk about this today. When it didn't feel like love, it was probably forced on you. So this is important work. Ask yourself, how was I shown love? Who showed me love? What were the actions associated with what I thought love was. Why? Why is this important? Because this is probably how you show love now. So let's fast forward. Second question, how do I show love now? What are the assumptions I make about what people want based on how I was loved? Oh, everyone loves cookies. Everyone loves a night out on the town. Everyone loves to be playful and silly. Everyone loves a good hike. Everyone loves goofing off. Everyone loves camping by a fire. What are the assumptions that you make about what other people want? What are the assumptions you make about what other people need? This gets very interesting, especially when you do couples work. Well, people need space. People need affection. People need deep talks. People need a good, strong drink. People need to confront their issues. People need to hear the truth at any cost. People need to have fun. People need to be cheered up. People need to be reminded of what they have. People need, people need, people need, fill in the blank. These are assumptions. What assumptions do we make about what people want? You must want affection. You must need a hug. You must want to talk. You must want company. You must want flowers. It's Valentine's Day. You know, you probably just want to get outside. You must want a cup of tea. You must want a trip, a new adventure. You must fill in the blank. Here we go. Assumptions. See where we're going here? What we are assuming people need or want, my friends, it is probably connected to either what you were given or what was forced on you that you didn't want. For example, if you had a very suffocating relationship with a parent, you will probably give people way too much space because that's what you think they want. Why? Because it's what you want. (laughs) It's what you wanted. We are such socially reactive humans. We're such socially reactive creatures. Or we loved fancy dinners. And this is what I was going to get around to. This is, I was chuckling at myself before I recorded the podcast because I thought, well, wherever you are, mom, in the heavens, you have to be laughing because you, you made me this person. Um, But my mom loved through serving other people. She loved making meals and making them beautiful and making memories. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was awesome. I mean, we have so many memories around food in my family. Um, It's a great thing. But I realized that just on autopilot, I had become exactly like that. I'm very much a hostess. I love throwing a dinner party. I once threw a dinner party for my own birthday. I invited all of my friends to my house. It was a dinner party for 12 people. I had to like expand onto the kitchen island, this huge long table. It was beautiful. I wanted to show them, instead of them bringing me gifts, I wanted to give them the gift of gratitude for being my friends. So everyone got a card at their place setting and I did a seven course meal for 12 people. And it was 
awesome. I loved doing it. Now, I don't know if all of them even remember that. But again, I'm showing love and thinking I'm really loving someone because that's how I was loved. Mom did memorable meals. So I was trying to do a memorable meal. Is that a bad thing? No. Was it as meaningful to them as it probably was to me? I don't think so. (laughs) That's okay. And we're going to talk about that too today. Like We have to be okay that people don't get what we give. Why? Because they weren't raised in my family. They didn't have Inez Landino as their mom. So it's meaningful to me, and it's got all these layers of memories and traditions and meaning layered on top of it. But that doesn't mean it means that to other people. And that needs to be okay. So often, we're just giving what we've been given. We're insisting on other people feeling loved by what we give. And we're hurt, and we're so confused when they aren't just effusively appreciative. And we blame them. We blame the lettuce. Well, they just, they're ungrateful. They're just selfish and ungrateful. And if we've done a little bit of therapy, then we get very judgy about it. Well, so-and-so must not know how to receive love. Don't you love that? Now, sometimes that is true. But I swear, some of us, we do a little bit of therapy and like we're, we're experts now. We're just analyzing everybody. We know three words of therapeutic speak and we're throwing them around. We know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> You know who you are. You do it. You go to therapy and then you come back to your friends groups and you're diagnosing everybody and telling everybody what's wrong with them because of their childhood. Stop doing that. But anyway, so we do this, right? We're giving what we've been given. We're unconsciously doing the same things. Either we're giving what we've been given or we're giving the opposite of what we were given because we didn't like it. So we're reacting one way or another. And then we're so upset that people don't know that we love them. And I, I, I have fallen into this trap. I just told you I've done all of the above. I unconsciously assumed that my parents, the way that they showed me love is how love is shown. And so unconsciously, this is how we go before we get conscious, unconsciously, habitually, I was showing love in the same ways. Cooking, serving, affection. My dad's a real conversationalist. So, you know, loving people through quality time, deep conversations. Hello, I'm a therapist. <laughs> And there's, again, there's nothing wrong with that. The difference is I wasn't aware. And we're going to get into that a little bit more later, but I wasn't aware. So the purpose of this podcast is, yes, we're talking about love and connection, but the first step is becoming aware of yourself. And I noticed that I felt unseen and unappreciated when people didn't respond the way I anticipated they would based on what I was giving. So I had to go back to, okay, how do I show love? What are my go-to behaviors? And where did they come from? Why do I show love this way? Now, you could say, Vanessa, some demonstrations of love are universal. Well, maybe, yes. A demonstration of care and concern for another. A demonstration of loyalty that you're there with and for someone. But how we do that specifically is very individual. It's also culturally sensitive. So the work now is to become conscious, to become aware How do I show love? What are my go-to behaviors? Am I the funny one? Do I love people by making them laugh? Am I more of the servant? Do I love people by insisting on helping them? Oh gosh, do I have a story of this? Anyway, without getting overly specific, someone was brought into my life at a certain point and there was pressure on the relationship that I should really like this person. And the first day that I met this person, she offered to fold my laundry. And y'all don't know me. 
okay, I can get a little behind on folding the laundry. Jared knows that. Yes, fine. But I was not really a big fan of somebody who I'd known for two hours folding my laundry. I mean, come on, there are personals, right? There are little personal effects in your laundry. You may not want people that you don't know going through your laundry. Not only did she insist on folding the laundry, I told her three times she was a guest in my home. Please don't. No, 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 please. I can handle that. No, please. That's so helpful. Here's something you can do. Here's something you can do. Please don't do that. I went to work and came home that evening and my laundry was folded. I'm going to tell you that didn't feel like love. (laughs) Okay. That did not feel like love. This person was insisting on quote unquote, showing me love, helping me by doing something that I neither needed nor wanted. Okay. So how do you show love? Are you the talker? Are you the one who assumes that everyone needs and really wants to talk out their feelings? This is where we have to become aware. What are the assumptions I make? Now, what is an assumption? An assumption is an idea that is accepted as true without proof. That's all that is. That's what that means. So it's like we're saying this is the truth, but I have no proof. So when we're talking about loving someone, it's like we're saying this is what you need. This is the truth. This is what you must want because of what I think you are. That's the assumption. And I don't need proof of that. I'm dialed out to the proof. I'm not paying attention to how you respond. I'm just insisting on giving you what I think you need and want. So what assumptions are we making about how we're loving other people? I just gave you a couple of examples. Everyone deep down really wants to talk it out. You know how that is when people are like, well, why aren't you talking to me? Because I don't want to talk. And then in the brain, it's like, no, you really do. And I'm here to tell you, no, they really don't. But Vanessa, don't they need to talk? Probably not on your schedule. (laughs) You don't want to hear that. They don't. Do you know one of the tenets of good therapy is follow the client? The way that I was taught this was stay in the tail of the comet. Isn't that beautiful? Stay in the tail of the comet. Wherever they're going, you stay right behind them. And when I make mistakes in therapy is when I try and get out ahead. It's hard to stay in the tail of the comet, especially when you're listening to someone who's in deep denial. Because you know that if they were to come out of that denial their life would get so much easier. They could see so much more. So it's a balancing act because sometimes, and I had another therapist tell me once, Vanessa, always just stay a quarter step ahead of the client, just a quarter step ahead of with what you can see and what you, you know, what you perceive is going on. So which one is it? Do you stay in the tail of the comet? Do you stay a quarter step ahead? But one way or another, what they're saying is stay close to that person. Don't get too far behind. Don't go into the weeds. If they're not stopping to take a deep dive into that memory, bring it up. Hey, do you want to talk about that? Eh, you know, I've dealt with it. Okay, then we move on. Why? Because I trust the process. Last week's podcast, I trust the process that if they feel safe with me, if they feel respected by me, the really important stuff is going to come up. So some of us insist on people talking. Well, what's wrong? I don't really, nothing. I'm fine. Well, I know you're not fine. What's wrong? I don't really want to talk about it. Well, you need to talk about it. No, they don't. Well, people need to talk about their feelings. They need to tell me what they're feeling. Okay, you got, yeah, I'm a therapist. I, In theory, I agree with you. But if you are pressuring someone to be emotionally transparent with you, they're going to shut down. And then some of us are exactly the opposite. No, people don't need to talk about their feelings. Feelings get you distracted. Feelings, 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 the worst. Everybody just wants their privacy. Leave them alone. Okay, well, now you have an emotional vacancy in the relationship because you don't want to get your hands dirty. No one wants to be alone. Everyone needs company. Well, so-and-so really said they wanted to be alone. No, but I know them. I'm going to stop by their house. No. What happens if you just take them at their word? 
Or the flip side, well, you know, people need their privacy. I don't want to intrude. No, I really, I mean, I I could really use a friend. Oh, you know, you'll get through it. You're fine. (laughs) Do you see? Sometimes love means cheering someone on. Sometimes love means letting people struggle and figure it out. But I want you to ask yourself, what assumptions have I made about what other people want? Look at the people in your life that you think you love really well. Is what you're giving based on assumptions about what you think people need? Or is it based on what they've told you, who they've said they are? Because whether or not you're right, well, people need to talk about their feelings. Yes, in theory, you're right. Well, people need to process their deep stuff. Yeah, in theory, you're right. They're never going to do that with you if they don't trust you, right? How are those assumptions working out for you? Why is it important to ask these questions? Because it sets us up for disconnection when we expect people to really love the way we love and give the way we give and respond to our overtures and they don't respond that way. We get discouraged. We stop trying when what we really need to do is check in with them. We do this because humans are by nature egocentric. What does that mean? It means we tend to view the world and make assumptions about it from the vantage point of our own ego the ego, the self. And we're often mystified and perplexed because people don't see things or think about things the way we do. This is how we know we're egocentric. Why don't people do X, Y, and Z? Well, because they're not you. (laughs) That's why. Literally, that's the answer. Because they're a different person. So we have to step outside of our assumptions. That helps us empathize with others. And empathy Always, always, always. Empathy is the ace up your sleeve. Empathy always increases the chances of connection. Can I promise you that people will connect with you immediately and deeply when you empathize with them? No. Can I promise you that it increases the chance of connection? Absolutely. Empathy is like vitamin C in your emotional diet. Everybody needs it. So sometimes we realize, man, my mom showed me this. My dad showed me this. Whatever it is, whoever raised you grandmother, grandparent, whatever it was. And you know what? I don't think I liked it either. I think I just adopted it. But before we realize that, we keep doing it. We keep doing the things that were shown to us, that were given to us, and they may not be at all what is needed. Okay, so third question. Does the other person like this, need this, or want this? Is what you are giving wanted? Now, the easiest way to know is to ask. This is very easy and often overlooked. Well, I want to take you out for your birthday and I want to give you a great night out on the town. So I made dinner reservations at this steakhouse and then we're going here and then we're going to listen to music, all this stuff. And the person inside is like, oh gosh, how do I tell him? How do I tell her? This is not what I want. This sounds like work. (laughs) This does not sound like fun to me. Yes, it's sort of a classical way to celebrate a birthday, but maybe that's not what I want. Or, you know, you've been grieving and um, you really need to just shake it off. You need to get outside. No, really what I want to do is just be in a cocoon under a blanket. No, 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 no. That's not what you need. You need a good brisk walk outside. Come on, let's go. No, that's not what I want. Do you see? There could be such a distance between what you are giving and what is needed, wanted, or liked. And I'm not talking about your intentions. I'm not saying that our intentions are not good. Just because something doesn't land well doesn't mean our intentions were wrong. Okay, that's the difference between intent and impact. Intent can be good. It can be wholesome and nurturing and honorable. I only wanted to do right. But the impact of it can be vastly different. So the easiest way to bridge that gap is to ask, do you want a hug right now? 
Would it be helpful for you to get outside? But we often overlook asking. Why? Because it's vulnerable. We don't want to appear unknowledgeable. We want to seem like we know. And we don't want to hear that what we've been doing is not what they've needed. You know, it's the old story of the man who brings his wife roses every Valentine's Day for 50 years. And then she tells him at some point, I never liked roses. 50 years. It's never what she wanted. Well, why didn't you say anything? Well, I didn't want him to feel bad. So I guess the love here was in the silence. You know, it's sort of some emotional caretaking. I get it. Sort of charming. But what if they had just had an honest conversation? Think of all of the ways that man missed How many opportunities he missed to really make her smile. But we do this if you'd just known. So how can you know? You can ask. You can also look for cues of enjoyment. Delight is very different than sort of an appreciative smile. When people are delighted, it's usually expressed through some element of surprise. They're taken aback. That's the first part of delight. Sometimes we might notice that they mention the gift past the time of the giving. Hey, by the way, thanks again for that. That was awesome. Or they tell the story. Oh, you're not going to believe what she did for me for my 40th. You're not going to believe what she gave me for Father's Day. Listen for that. What that tells you is that it was important. Listen for a mood shift on the part of the other person. Okay, so maybe we insist, my example from before, that someone who's grieving, they've just been holed up in their house. We've all been there. We've all been with someone in this state. Come on, let's take a walk. Let's get out of the house. And we think we know what they need and they go with us and they talk and there's scientific knowledge here. There's scientific information on the importance of bilateral movement when you're processing emotions. So actually walking and talking is one of the best things you can do to process things, but that's another podcast. But we go for a walk. Okay, and then we come back to the house and they say, you know, that really helped. Thank you for getting me out of the house. Now, I'm guilty of this all the time. I am a homebody. I would stay home literally seven days a week and almost never leave except maybe to go to the grocery store. But I would probably just have my groceries delivered if I could. I love being home. I love all my little things. I love my plants. I like to pet the dog. Like, I just love being home. Jared is a go out and experience the world guy. So very often... And this was such a loving thing. Very often, Jared's just excited about plans. And inside, I'm thinking, okay, I'm doing this for him because it's important for both of us to get out and experience things together. But I would honestly rather just be sipping a nice glass of wine in front of the fire. So we get out. But I can't tell you how many times Jared's like, come on, it'll be fun. And we go out on the town. And then eventually I turn around and say to him, this is actually awesome. I'm so glad we came out tonight. Now, the other night, we had this fun night planned. And Jared knew I was dragging my feet and he just knew I hadn't slept well. I was really tired. And he looked at me and he said, you know, if you want to stay in, I'm good. We can just stay in. We can cook. We can order in. I'm good. And I know how much of a sacrifice that is for him. But the truth is I needed to rally and I wanted to. And and we actually had a great evening. So look for a mood shift. Now, if you take the grieving person out for a walk and they come back and they're like, okay, great. We did it. I'm going back under the covers. That's not what was needed. You probably need to apologize. And if you're dragging someone out to your event and they're, you know, half-hearted, smiling, whatever, they're just showing up, you probably need to say, you know, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know that this is what we both wanted to be doing tonight. So you have to look for the shift and then notice when there's no shift. The mood is not improved. The joy is not increased. What does this tell you? It tells you this. They're complying with you. They are complying with you. 
Remember, they're the one receiving the love. This is not sacrifice. Sacrifice is a whole different thing. Sacrifice is I set aside what I want or what is good for me for the good of you or something else. That's sacrifice. I'm talking about when we're showing people love, we're trying to give them something we think they want, need, or like, and they're telling us with their actions, with their nonverbal cues, they don't want this. We keep saying, come talk to me. And they're giving us one word answers. What does that tell you? They're complying. This is not something they need, want, or like. And some of us just march on. We keep coming in hot with our assumptions about what our loved ones need and want, and we're not cued in to them. And we wonder why these relationships feel distant. Maybe we're giving space when what they want is more contact, or we're giving affection when what they want is space. And we're making every effort to fulfill our idea of love, and we're confused as to why other people aren't simply fawning over how loving we are. And we may get angry or resentful, or we might pull away, or we keep giving the same things, and we're calling this love, and it's not love. Love is attuned. Ask yourself, what reaction am I looking for when I give what I give? Do my choices in how I give love, are they bonding me to other people? This is an important question. Friends, is it working? Are you closer? Are you more connected? Do you feel more bonded to the people that you're working so hard at loving? Don't blame the lettuce. Don't blame them that they're not responding to what you're giving. It just could mean that what you're giving is not what they want or need. And most humans will let you know. We've all tried to kiss and snuggle the puppy who's squirming away from us. We've all tried to pick up the baby and hold the baby and snuggle the baby. And the baby is physically with their hand pushing us away. Human beings, most creatures, will let you know. If they're pushing you away, your work is to honor it. Now, how do you get the sense that people are just dialing it in instead of really feeling loved by you? Limp smiles, half-hearted thank yous. If you have a teenager, you're going to get eye rolls. (laughs) Shutting down, silence, withdrawal. Friends, this is all communication. If we're really interested in loving people, we've got to be tuned in if we're getting these responses. Next question. What does love mean to the person I'm claiming I love? What does love look like for them? Complete this sentence, okay? To me, love looks like blank. Okay, I'll answer this as Vanessa. To me, love looks like feeling heard. Love looks like someone allowing me to be weak and strong, masculine and feminine. In other words, to me, love looks like someone having the space within them to hold all that I am. I'm not too much for someone who loves me. I cannot know and I can know. I can be seen as a humble learner and I can also be seen as a competent knower. They don't need me to be one or the other, and they respect both places in me. Okay, so this is just a little bit about me. That's when I feel loved, is when people can hold all that I am, and I feel very heard. Okay? Now, complete this sentence for the person you've been thinking about the whole time you've been listening to this podcast, and I know you. There is someone on your mind. Think about it. You know you've been thinking about maybe one or two people. To so-and-so, whoever that is, love looks like what? And if you can't answer that question, there's a conversation to be had in front of you. Do you see how important this is? Do you see? This isn't just about flowers and chocolate. This isn't just about birthday cake. This is about you loving on purpose. 
knowing someone, taking the time to know what feels like love to them, not just gifts, because we could know what someone loves. Oh, they like, you know, a new purse or they like, um, you know, a trip here or, you know, a fancy car or toy, whatever, a new sweater. I'm not talking about gifts necessarily. I'm talking about actions that communicate. I love you. Gifts is one of them. For some of you, And yes, you might be thinking, oh, Vanessa, are you talking about the five love languages? Kinda, but there are more love languages than those five. Sometimes somebody's love language is listening. Sometimes somebody's love language is take a couple of tasks off of their to-do list so that they don't have to think about them. And yeah, that sounds like quality time or acts of service. Sometimes somebody's love language is understanding that the reaction that they're having right now is more about their trauma than who they really are. That's a love language. I forgive you for that. I understand what you're actually trying to say to me. I understand that the trauma is getting in the way. So it means we're knowing them. We're asking. We're learning. Okay, so that brings us to the fifth question. What do they need? Not what do I want to give? What do they actually need? So the first word I want you to really hear me say is attunement. People need, before you do anything, before you bake a casserole, wash their car, or plan a date, they need attunement. This means you're tuned in, you're paying attention, you're seeking knowledge about them, and it means you're challenging your assumptions. It means you know this is how I give love. That does not mean this is what everyone wants. It does not mean that if I give it, I'm going to get the response I want. It means you know another person's history. You know what is meaningful for them in their childhood, and their lives. It means you also know what they hate. There are certain aspects of my life from my childhood that I do not want. I just either I got enough of it <laughs> from age, you know, zero to 17 when I left home or I didn't like it. It means learning what means the most to someone, what delights them. It means you ask, not just what do you want, what do you need, but other ways to ask that. When do you feel closest to me? When do you feel the most connected to me? And my friends, sometimes loving means learning how to hold back. Sometimes we think what is needed is not needed or what is wanted. It's not wanted. People don't need us to give exactly what we think they need to give right now. Well, I'm going to tell them the truth. Okay, that may not be what they need right now. Maybe for this moment right now, they need to keep believing what they've been believing. And they just need to be heard in that. And that's the difference between what you think someone needs and what someone actually needs. Maybe people don't want our company right now. What we need is a respectful, understanding distance. And it's a distance that doesn't reek of abandonment. Oh, fine. Oh, you don't want me to do that? You don't want me with you on that trip? You don't want me to go for a drive with you? Fine. Okay, that's not respect. It's abandonment. We get all hurt because people don't want what we have to give. I I have done this. I made this beautiful meal. You didn't even say thank you. I have done this because it's not what that person necessarily wanted or needed. There's nothing wrong with you wanting to take someone for a drive. There's nothing wrong with you wanting to take somebody out to dinner. There's nothing wrong with whatever it is you want to give. No, I really want to fold your laundry. I don't want you to. That's love, is paying attention. Attunement and attention have the same root. 
knowing another person's history, learning what matters the most, asking them, and then learning how to hold back. And this needs to be said because when we are forcing what we want onto other people, they feel smothered, pressured, and disrespected. And these experiences, being smothered, pressured, and disrespected, typically do not bring people closer together. People are leaning away because what we are giving is not what they want. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting what you are giving. Very often, someone wants you in their life. They just don't want you to show up the way you're showing up right now with your assumptions about what they want based on your childhood. Do you see how important this work is? You have to know yourself, know why you give what you give so that when someone says, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. It's not personal. They're not rejecting you. They are rejecting a style of how you love. And if what you're doing isn't working, what's the logical thing to do? Stop. Check in. Ask, what I'm giving you right now doesn't seem to be what you want. Do you know what you want from me right now? Do you know what you need? Now, somebody may say, no, I don't. Okay, well, I'm going to give you some space to think about that. If you have any thoughts on that, I'm here. Or, yes, I need space. Okay, then do that. Or, yes, I just, I want to, I want to hang out with you right now. I just don't want to talk about my feelings. Okay, let's do that. Why is that important? Because what you're building in that moment is not what you want. It's trust. And trust is the foundation for relationship. Friends, this isn't easy. We have natural and ingrained styles of loving. We have natural and ingrained assumptions about what it means to love someone. Today, I want us to become conscious, aware. Don't worry about what you're doing wrong. Likely you're not doing anything wrong. You may just not be attuned. Maybe you're giving and giving and giving and giving, but it's actually not landing because it's not what's needed. So let's let our consciousness expand to understanding our own past, why we give what we give, why we call love what we call it. Let's let our awareness of our partners, our friends, our children, let's let that develop intentionally so that we know we're loving them well. This quote by Banta Love is not blind. Love sees what is most true. I know what this quote, I think, I know what this quote is really about. It's about seeing the beauty in another person, right? We say love is blind. Well, no, actually, love is actually seeing who and what another being is, right? But it stood out to me because in either interpretation, loving is a choice to see. And sometimes, and maybe the most loving thing we can do for someone else is honestly see ourselves first. Should I repeat that? I think I should. The most loving thing we can do for someone else is honestly, bravely see ourselves first. This means we become conscious, aware, and intentional. We stop loving on autopilot. We're not governed by our conditioning, expecting people to respond to the way we've been loving. But we're awake. We're tuned in. We're asking questions. We're expanding. We're paying attention. And we're doing things on purpose. Even if it feels awkward, even if it's not native to us, what's a better definition of love? All right, let's pause there. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. We are over 8,000. My friends, this community is growing and you are growing it. I get notifications on my app, my little podcast app, about how many people are listening and how many people are tuned in. 
I'm astounded by you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this. 8,000. If you have a moment, please, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating if you feel so inclined. If you have a minute to write a review, that keeps moving us up the charts on Apple Podcasts, which is kind of the gold standard of podcast here in the States. By the way, we are charting. We have charted in Israel. We are charting in Hungary, of all places, which is so cool. So again, if you like what you hear, share this podcast. It's already around the world. You've heard me say that. And remember... Your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn to love that human being. Happy Valentine's Day. The love that you've been giving is good, but the awareness that you are developing is even more important. Till next time. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino podcast.